Good morning. My name's Lyle. I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here with you on Sunday morning with a group of diehards. This is always the, the diehard group, so thanks for having me here and letting me spend Sunday morning with you. I want to thank Dudley and uh, Marge for uh, hosting me, uh, taking me to the, or getting, picking me up, and also taking me back to the airport. I want to thank the committee for all the work they do. You know, we, um, the speakers get a lot of thank yous, but <clears throat> we really do the, the light lifting. The committee does the heavy lifting because this is a year-long endeavor, at least that, and there's an awful lot of work that goes into it. So my thanks and appreciation to everyone who had anything to do with this conference committee. Uh, so thank you for all your work and for having us here. <clears throat> I was uh, amused as I looked at the program, and speaker after speaker said, well, it says that I'm from here, but I'm not really from here anymore. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I hadn't seen that done in mass like that before, but it's not a big deal, as we know. But last year, uh, I was uh, traveling around a little bit, and I'm from Stockbridge, Georgia. I live there. I'm not from there, but I live there. And uh, one conference had me down as being from Stockton, Georgia. No big deal. Another one had me down as being from Stonebridge, Georgia. <clears throat> Again, not a big deal. And I was telling them that the, the best of all those when I was in England, and they had me down as being from Stockingbridge, Georgia. <laughs> And the Brits, Brits were struggling with that, and they were going, well, where is Stocking Bridge? And I said, well, it's right across the state line from Pantyhose, Alabama. <laughs> <coughs> you know, it's been a reference to our laughter uh, several times by different speakers, and, and that's always been a big thing for me. And, and I commented about that in an email to another AA person not long ago, and she sent back a response. I thought, I wish I had... I wish I had thought of it in terms that she did. I wish I had used her words, and I'm giving her credit for this. And she said, I, to me, she said, our laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous is the sound of freedom. And I thought, what a beautiful way to phrase that. What a beautiful way to phrase that. And especially the quality of our laughter today. <clears throat> and one of the speakers said, it's not through that, I think it was Bo said, not through that gritted teeth laughter. It's, our laughter today is whole and healthy and healing. And I've never seen anybody who showed up here who uh, could participate in that. I couldn't even smile when I got here. don't know how many newcomers are with us today, but if there are any here, I want you to know you're the reason I'm here. <clears throat> I, I believe strongly that the only reason we come to the podium and we share these stories, and this is my, this is my take on it, <clears throat> is that based on how I felt early on, is that I need to see real living evidence that what they're telling me in treatment, <clears throat> which was an AA treatment center model, a very heavily 12-step model treatment center, what I'm reading in the big book, what my counselors are telling me, what we're learning in the groups about the steps and the promises, I need to know that in reality, somehow, some way, that translates out here in the real world once I leave that treatment center, once I go into AA. And once I leave the AA meetings, I need to know that the evidence is, is real, that there is really substance to this, that it does work. And so I think that's really <clears throat> the whole point and purpose of coming up here and sharing stories. And I never hear a story that I don't relate to. I don't care if they're young or old, <clears throat> male or female, red, white, black, or yellow. Uh, the, uh, the facts and circumstances are always different. Some are um, more exciting than others. But what I'm listening for is what the disease does to the speaker, the person who's experiencing it, and then the experiences that they get from recovery. And that's what I pay attention to. And so I hear my story in every story that's told from the podium because that's what I'm looking for and listening to. Uh, <clears throat> I just um, I'm going to try to disclose in a general way what, what we were like, what happened and what I'm like now. <clears throat> now, I used to say what it was like. I didn't think it was a big deal. Still don't really. I hear a lot of speakers do that. And I got a real cryptic email from a guy in uh, southwest Georgia who identified himself as an old-timer. And he said, I'm sitting here listening to one of your CDs with some newcomers, and you're misquoting the big book. I don't quote the big book from the podium. Some of the speakers this weekend have done that. <clears throat> and they have a gift for that. I don't have that gift. 
I mean, they can tell you, and I, I'm familiar with the quotes when they put them out there. Sure, I've read those and heard those many times, but I can't tell you where they are. But every now and then I'll <coughs> throw something out and say something like, you know, if you take a look at the top of page 132, and I have no idea what's there, I just know you're going to go look. <coughs> <coughs> and uh, anyway, he says, you're misquoting the big book. You're saying what it was like instead of what we were like. And I thought, oh, for God, <laughs> this is really worth all this. And I, but I put my AA face on, and I sent him back a deal, and I said, well, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. And apparently didn't have the real ring of sincerity he was looking for, because I, <laughs> I get another email back, and he says, well, it's really important. He said, if some of the old-timers and I were sitting on the front row and you started that way, we might just get up and walk out thinking that if you're going to start by misquoting the big book, the rest of the message can't be worth listening to. And that kind of tweaked my competitive spirit at that point. <laughs> and I sent back a deal, and I said, look, um, as long as this seems to be a... I said, I don't think, first of all, I don't think I'd burst into tears if that happened. Uh, secondly, um, I don't think that um, when we read how it works, it doesn't say rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly memorized the book. <laughs> and so I didn't get any more emails at that point. And, <laughs> <clears throat> However, about two years later, I went down there to speak at a conference, and he was my host. <clears throat> I just love it the way things work out in this program. There are three days <clears throat> that are burned into my brain, March 7th, 8th, and 9th. And those are three days like the Kennedy assassination, where on any given moment on any of those days, I look at my watch, and I know what was taking place at that moment, at that time, on that particular day. <clears throat> Over the course of 24 years, I haven't noticed really that the intensity has faded very much, and I pray God that it doesn't. I never want to forget that. My sobriety day is March the 7th of 1990, <clears throat> and uh, March 7th, 8th, and 9th, uh, for 72 hours of, of, uh, of an experience that, that uh, saved my life, but I don't think I could ever live through it again. I just don't. I'm going to start <clears throat> with what happened, because it was a thing that was a national attention getter. It ripped through the news all over the United States and Canada, went to Asia and Europe. I'm hearing from people over there. But on the morning of March the 8th, an event took place that had never occurred before, and that is that an airline crew, three pilots, were arrested for having flown a air, commercial airliner from Fargo, North Dakota, to the Twin Cities International Airport, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I was the captain of that flight crew. <clears throat> Typically, and has been the case as well this weekend, when the speaker leaves the podium, you don't know what they did for a living. Sometimes there'll be a hint or there'll be a brief comment because what we did for a living, whether it was a career, job, profession, whatever it was, really is not germane or relevant to the, the, the story and the process of recovery. And that's as it should be. <clears throat> I talk about it because it was the thing that drove this media frenzy, this blitzkrieg of media coverage. It's also the thing that set me up for a federal felony conviction. If I had been a doctor, an attorney, a plumber, electrician, construction worker, office worker, if I'd been anything else, none of the fallout would have occurred. So it's in the context of that and that alone that I talk about being an airline pilot. I'm not an airline pilot who's an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic who got to be an airline pilot, and I'll talk about that. <clears throat> I just don't believe we have any prestige or status in this fellowship, none whatsoever except that one thing that we all search for, achieve, try to achieve, and climb to, and that's called sobriety. That's the thread that holds us all together. That's the ultimate goal and achievement, in my view, of what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. And unless I get an email <coughs> saying that we, that we just broke ground on the A Hall of Fame, I'm going to continue to believe that. So uh, that's the only point and purpose of me talking about being an airline pilot. That situation never occurred before. Now, it's occurred a number of times since then, dozens of times. Actually, I've watched over the 24 years, but 
what happens is um, there'll be a pilot's picture in the paper one evening, uh, or he's on the news for having been caught by the TSA folks and testing uh, above the alcohol limit, and then you don't see it anymore. <clears throat> that was not the case with me. I was the very first airline pilot, and this thing stayed on and stayed on and stayed on. And I, I remember thinking at one point, I don't know that Pearl Harbor ever got this much coverage. Well, is it ever going to end? Will it ever go away? <clears throat> Will the news cycle ever start without the lead story being the three pilots from Northwest Flight 650? I spent 12 hours <clears throat> on the day of the arrest giving blood twice, and it was at the second facility that a reporter saw three airline pilots in uniform escorted by two uniformed police officers that the story managed to break to the public. I had no idea that was going to occur. Northwest Airlines at the time of my arrest was the only major carrier that didn't have a program for alcoholic pilots. And I knew what happened. <clears throat> First thing that was going to happen was this story was going to rip through the airline like wildfire. I mean, it was going to slash through the airline and nothing flat because I'd seen it happen before. And the horror and the shame of it was that my name was attached to it because that isn't who I am, it's not what I'm about. It was never what I was supposed to do. The shame and the despair was, was crippling. I used to try to find words to describe that, and the big book says it in a very short, succinct, absolute, accurate way. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And the shame and the disgrace and the dishonor that I felt that day was only going to get exponentially worse as the days ahead unwound. And I thought about that later, and I thought, why? <clears throat> I thought one of the reasons was that I had been the guy in my family as my three kids grew up and left. I had been the standard bearer for things like duty, honor, country. Character, honesty, integrity do the right thing. <clears throat> and the personal example that I had just set rendered all of that null and void, hollow and meaningless. And I had a, a, a horrific struggle with that. <clears throat> I got home late that night. Well, I got to a commuter apartment, actually. For the first time that day, it occurred to me I was supposed to be home tonight. Barbara was out of the Atlanta airport. She waited out there for four hours, and I didn't show up. And I called home, and she was still not home, and I left a very defeated, whispered message on the answering machine that there had been a disaster. I thought I'd lost my job. <clears throat> I'd be home first flight in the morning. I don't know why she didn't call me back, having received a message like that. Later, I saw it as a gift because I was so sick. I didn't want to talk about any of this. I got home the next morning, <clears throat> early in the, I knew I'd never wear a uniform again. Wore the uniform commuting home, hurriedly exited the airport. I knew a lot of people out there, didn't want anybody to stop me or talk me, talk to me, see me. I've never told a story, but what I haven't said that I exited, I saw Barbara parked off to the right. I felt like I had to climb over the curb to get in the car with her. <clears throat> We'd been married a long time. I couldn't look at her. <clears throat> And all I could do was get out a very defeated, whispered message. I said, <clears throat> honey, I'm so sorry. She didn't say anything to me except very softly. She got a soft South Texas voice. Who better than I might understand how you feel right now? We drove home in silence. Again, another gift that I didn't recognize until later. Because I wondered later, what wife, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> having learned that her husband had just trashed a 22-year golden career as an airline captain, would not have said to her husband, you've seen this before, why did you stay and drink? Why didn't you go back to your hotel room? Why did you go in the first place? You knew the Northwest policy. She had a right to every one of those questions, and I didn't have an answer for any of them. She went to work. <clears throat> I went inside the house. 
deathly quiet. I couldn't stay still. I did not want to be in my skin. Moments later, I called the only person I knew to call. He was a Ph.D. family therapist who will get involved in the story here shortly, but I, I didn't know who else to call. And I said, there's been an emergency. I need to declare a disaster. Or there's been a disaster. I need to declare an emergency. <clears throat> and he said, come straight in. And I walked away. He said, I'll clear the calendar. And I walked in. And uh, I, can, I, I can still see everything like it just happened the office layout, and the good thing about what had happened is that this was it for me. I was done. I was through. I was beaten. I had no more will to fight or resist. There was no way I was going to play around this. So I just walked in and told him what happened, <clears throat> and he, he, he recoiled, and he looked at me in stunned shock, and he said, God, Lyle, he said, this is horrible. He said, this is absolutely horrible. It's now March, <clears throat> March the 9th, and I'm going to hear two comments that day, neither one of which I can process. <clears throat> he started around his desk, and I heard the first one as he stopped, and he turned and he looked at me. He said, but maybe this is what had to happen. I had no idea why he would say that to me. I couldn't figure out why he would make that comment to me, and I didn't respond, and he left and came back shortly. Thereafter, he says, <clears throat> okay, he said, I want you to go see a doctor tonight. He's very prominent here in Atlanta. He's on the other side of Atlanta. I'll give you a set of directions. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. He's a recovering alcoholic, cocaine addict. He's certified in addiction medicine. And I had never heard of addiction medicine. Did not know there was any such thing. He said he wants to see you at 6 o'clock tonight. Now, this is Friday. <clears throat> and even in the shredded mental condition I was in, that I, I sensed that. I picked up on that. <coughs> Excuse me. I conveyed a certain sense of urgency to me, and I knew it. Later, the Ph.D. doc said to me, he said, based on your appearance, he said, I was afraid you were suicide. I thought, you know, I don't know what, what I look like, but I'm already starting to have dark thoughts. So Barbara and I drove across Atlanta to this man's office. It had been two days since I had anything to eat or drink. Couldn't keep anything down, didn't want to eat, didn't want anything to drink. And I have no memory of that meeting. It's just like an alcoholic blackout, <clears throat> except I was stone cold sober. I know I was there, and I know whenever he asked me a question, I gave him a straight, direct answer as best I could at that moment in time, and they were as honest as I could be. And he looked at me after some period of time, and he said, Lyle, you're an alcoholic, and you need to get into treatment tonight. <clears throat> I had no reaction to that, and that was significant because I've hated alcoholics all my life. I've hated alcoholics. I have two parents who died from this disease, and I saw what alcohol did in our family. I grew up in the Native American community. I saw what it did there. I saw what it did in the towns and cities where I flew around the country, the drunks in the alleyways and the doorways, brown paper bags, <coughs> dirty, filthy laying on benches, sometimes sprawled on the grass in the parks. Those were alcoholics. That was my picture of an alcoholic. I had a very thin profile picture of an alcoholic, and I wasn't one. <clears throat> but somehow in that 24 hours since the arrest, in a way I will never understand or know, somehow way down deep inside, all the dots got connected. And I knew. I knew I was that one thing I swore and said I would never be. I'm an alcoholic. So I didn't react. And I said to him, I thought you'd probably tell me that, and I'm okay with it. But I said, I just got home today. I said, I'd like to go home, and please let me go home and let Barbara just hold on to me. I just, love, I just want her to hang on to me. Let my mind uncoil. Let me absorb what's happened to me, and then I'll go into treatment. He said, you need to go into treatment tonight. And I took a breath, and I looked at him. I said, okay. So we left there, following another set of directions, back across Atlanta to a treatment center that was two and a half miles from the Atlanta airport. We made the final turn the treatment center, and the lights hit a sign that was there, no longer is. 
it was at the time, and I hit the brakes and I stopped with the lights directly on the sign right in front of me, and it said Anchor Hospital, <clears throat> a hospital for alcoholism and other chemical dependencies. And it was then as it is when we do our writing and we see it in black and white and we put the stuff down and we look at it, reality kicks in and it did and I felt like somebody just kicked me right in the guts. <clears throat> and I thought, my God Almighty, my life ends tonight in a treatment center for alcoholics. What happened? What happened? And I had a little quick mini flashback of the really high points in my life, the real trophy moments, the achievements, the accomplishments, most of them against the odds, that made me who I was, gave me a sense and a feeling and a definition of who I was, that I was enormously proud of. And it was as though they vanished, and I wasn't even sure if they ever really existed. And I sat there empty, <clears throat> with no self-worth, my value as a human being was zero, absolute zero. Some years later, I read a summarizing paragraph at the end of a lengthy report from one of the doctors. And it said, given the history and background of this man, it was unlikely to believe he would ever be a productive member of society. And I remember kind of flinching at that because I couldn't understand how he reached that conclusion. And then I thought, well, I was the one that gave him all the information. <clears throat> we started down the hill into the treatment center, <clears throat> dark, the end of my life. And for the first time that day, I thought, this is March the 9th. This is my 27th wedding anniversary. And I said, very defeatedly again, Hell of a way to spend an anniversary, huh? I then heard the second statement that I couldn't process, as Barbara said, very slow, very softly, might be the best one we ever had. And I thought, who could think that? Who could think that at a moment like this? My life is so broken, it's not possible to rebuild it. It's not recoverable. This is way beyond any point of possibility. How could she think that? And I didn't respond. Now, I like to kind of lighten things up a little bit at this point. <laughs> Tell you that a few years ago, March the 9th rolled around. And it was 9 o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful day in Georgia. Clear blue skies. Nice, cool temp. And up the long, winding driveway to our house comes one of my sponsees. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I've heard the story. It's March the 9th. I know it's your anniversary. I thought I'd surprise you and Barbara and just come by and wish you well. And I said, well, come on in. Barbara had coffee going. We're sitting around. The conversation's light and breezy. And uh, <clears throat> he says, finally, he says, well, what's the secret to having stayed married so long? And I didn't get a chance to respond. Barbara said, I think it's mostly due to the fact that I can never stand to admit I made a mistake. <laughs> tip to the newcomer. A tip to the newcomer. You're going to hear that this is an ego deflating program. Do not share that with your wife. <clears throat> I mean, she's on duty 24-7. Last year I was speaking at uh, Whitworth Women's Prison. I've been there a number of times in other prisons down there in Georgia. And at one point in time during the presentation I was talking and, and uh, this was, these are not the normal AA crowds. These women, these prison women, all of them were pretty hard looking, go, God, you are hot. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, and this goes on. And it took me by surprise. I started laughing and uh, went home and I told Barbara that. And she said, they must have been locked up a really long time. <laughs> I have to tell her what I share with her. I really do. I'm going to kind of patch in the rest of this and tell you that I was born in Wichita, Kansas in September 1938, so in two months I'll be hitting 76. Not a big deal, um, just a big number got here really fast. Um, I um, go ahead and get the age thing out of the way because I know I'm not the only one that sits out there and tries to figure out how old the speaker is. <coughs> I, it's been my experience that the hardest ones to work with are the lady speakers in AA. Now, I was surprised last night when Patty says I'm 65. I thought, well, hell, that takes all the fun out of it. 
Because usually what they do is they will drop these little cookie crumb things along the way. And they'll say, I graduated from college. I'm thinking, okay, she was 21 or 22. And she'll say, um, the same year Kennedy was assassinated. And I'm going, Jesus Christ, that's 63 minus 21 or 20. So, or I had my first... <coughs> I had my first child, I was 24, and that was uh, two years after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I'm going, 68 or 69? Well, yeah. <clears throat> then she walks off the stage, I'm going, hell, I don't know, she's 43 or 68. I, yeah. so, so I just get it out of the way. And, um, you know, I've been blessed with outstanding health. Uh, you know, most of the people my age have got knee replacements, hip replacements, back operations, neck operations, or other parts that are medicated, modified. <laughs> So I like to say, I've still got all my, old, my own parts, and they all work. And uh, again, Barbara will jump up and go, well, uh, most of the time. And <laughs> I grew up in a World War II housing project on the southeast edge of Wichita called Plainview, a very economically depressed area, very economically depressed. Poor is a subjective term. If I'm speaking on a reservation someplace, and I'm looking at homes that have corrugated tin roofs and no water, electricity. I was not poor by those standards, but we never had anything. Everything we had was patched, broken, wired, taped, uh, and that's the way we grew up. Always struggling to catch up, but I, it was in the 50s, and I tell you what, no matter where I was at that point in time, those were happy times for me. I was a happy kid. It was literally the days of happy days. We were all the same. Nobody had anything. It was a very diverse community, um, a, a mixture of blacks and whites and Hispanics and a small Native American segment, and everybody got along. Very seldom was there a disturbance or trouble out there. No drive-by shootings, no gangs, drugs were not popular at the time. I've never done any drugs. I didn't even smoke cigarettes. So my pedigree is pretty pristine, but I always thought that it's because I don't like to multitask. I don't want a cigarette in one hand and a drink. I'd rather have a drink in both hands. And <clears throat> I just do one thing really well. I was part of the um, small Native American segment. I'm an ethnic mix of several different things, but the parts that really respond to the alcohol are the Irish and Comanche parts. And uh, uh, <clears throat> so I never had just basically a routine, dull, ho-hum drinking episode. I was going to have something was going to happen one way or the other before the evening was over, generally speaking. And because I get a chance to go pick my parents, I thought that was a good mix because uh, I love the Irish stuff, those freedom songs and rebel songs. I had a bunch of the albums, and I knew the songs and the artists and the bands and places. And when I was driving around the country, I knew where those places were that had the live, authentic Irish entertainment. I had for them. Then I changed my clothes. I was out the door. I was in those places as fast as I could get, and I'm listening to the Irish music, and I'm drinking. And I don't leave until the band shuts down and quits, and I'm the last one out the door. And I'm just having a, oh, it's just a great time. And then I might be someplace else. And maybe the other side kicks in, the mood's different, the places are different. And the other part kicks in, and I think, you know, this would be a good evening just go have a couple of drinks and kill a few white people. <laughs> <laughs> so you just never knew. <clears throat> when I was 14, the alcohol had done its job inside the family. Both of my parents were full-blown alcoholics at that time. The family, a lot of bad stuff had happened in there, and the family disintegrated. And my parents got a divorce. <clears throat> and within about the next three years, each of them had been married and divorced two more times. And I didn't get along with step-parents or step-siblings, constantly in a clash of conflict and being asked to go back to the other side, and I'd be over there for a while until the same thing occurred. Then I'd bounce back. Faces changed, names changed. I don't remember any of those people. Wouldn't know them if they walked into the room tonight or came up to the podium afterwards. I, I, I don't remember any. <clears throat> I uh, graduated when I was 17. And um, most of the people from my part of the city didn't go to college. They married their little high school sweethearts and went to work for Boeing, Beach, Cessna, or some of the other aircraft factories that Wichita is known for. And I wasn't going to do that. I was going to join the service, but I wasn't sure what just then. About that time, one of my friends came back from the Marine Corps and uh, looked really sharp, right out of boot camp. And so he and I sat in the bar for several hours one afternoon as he regaled me with nonstop stories of what Marine drill instructors do to the recruits. And these are cruel, sadistic, brutal stories. And I'm hanging on every word. And this is almost like an early indication that my thinking wasn't really good because I'm thinking, God, I just can't wait to go do that. 
<clears throat> and I'm 18 by this time, and within a couple of days, I'd found a Marine recruiter, and off I went to Marine boot camp. And I hear a lot of stories from the podium, and I'm sure this other speakers do as well. And there's two common things, neither one of which will apply in my case. One of them is that I never fit in, I never felt like I belonged. That's always true for the people who come up here and tell you that. It's not true for me. The other one is, <clears throat> I, I took that first drink, and amazing things happened, and I knew that from here on out I was going to, that's what I was going to chase. That wasn't my experience either. Now, I want to tell the newcomers, if you're sitting here with some doubt about whether or not you need to be here, and if you're doing what I did at one point in time in my life, and you're looking for the differences, you'll have ample opportunity here as you listen to the speakers, because our stories are all over the place. Our drinking patterns are all over the place. <clears throat> and so if you want to sit here and go, I didn't do that, then you'll, find, you'll have ample opportunity to convince yourself that you don't belong here. But I suspect the best thing to do is listen to the similarities. You know, I, I'm not going to do a big drunk along. <clears throat> I don't have time in the, in the time that I'm going to be up here. And I think it's important to talk about the drinking. But I, I either have to talk about my drunk along, and I can go on for an hour about that, or I talk about the other parts of the recovery process, which I, that, and that's where my focus goes. But I had... You know, I, I came up, I never thought I was an alcoholic, but every now and then I'd, I'd propose a test just to see. Now, I get into treatment and they point out to me that most normal drinkers don't feel compelled to do that. <clears throat> but I came up with these tests based on absolutely zero knowledge. I had seen a lot of alcoholism. What I saw was alcoholic behavior, which is distinctly different from knowing about the disease of alcoholism. And when I get into treatment and I learn about the disease of alcoholism, it's all over me. There's nobody in my face trying to convince me. I hear it. I know it. I'm laying in bed. I can't sleep. It's all over me. Everything they bring out belongs to me. And I know that. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me. I, anyway, I was saying our, our stories are all over the way, all over the place. I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel magic the first time I took a drink. This is a chronic progressive disease. We don't all progress at the same rate. But eventually I got there. I uh, <clears throat> went into the Marine Corps, and after I got over the initial culture shock, I loved it. This was an incredible experience. It was extreme. It was difficult. It was intense. And I, you know, I've told you that my parents died from alcoholism. I never go to the podium without thanking my parents for the good things they gave me for the years before the year alcohol killed them. They gave me some great stuff, and I'm indebted to my parents. I'm not an alcoholic because both my parents are. I, I know a lot about this disease. I know a lot about the genetics and the brain chemistry. I know a lot about all that stuff. I'm an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic. And I thank my parents for the good stuff they gave me. I went in there, and I only know how to do things one way. That's the best way I can possibly do it. And I drive harder than I, than I think that I, is possible. And for 13 weeks in boot camp, I did that. And as the 13th week arrived, the drill instructors called out three names of the three top guys in the platoon of 70. I was the number two name called. Two seems to be my number, as I'll mention a little later on here. I was amazed. I had never achieved or accomplished anything under those conditions and circumstances. And I just couldn't believe that I had excelled that much. And so I get one, a PFC strike. Now, you can't run the Marine Corps as a private first class, but I'll tell you what, I couldn't take my eyes off of that strike. I've got 67 of my buddies that are still slick sleep privates, and I'm a PFC, private first class prouse. Man, what an amazing thing. And I keep looking at that red-bordered strike. And we go to Camp Pendleton, and... Uh, we immediately drew guard duty, and because of that, I've got that stripe, I'm inside a warm, dry concert hut, and my buddies are out in the rain walking post with a rifle on their shoulder. And I look over in the corner, and I see a, a, a Marine lieutenant uniform over there with a silver bar on it, first lieutenant. And I looked at that, and I slid my chair back, and I thought, by God, you know what, this is where I belong, because at the rate I'm moving up, general can't be that far away. <laughs> <laughs> All I wanted to do is be a Marine, and I excelled throughout. My drinking picks up. Now, as I said, I'm not going to do a big drunk log. I had everything happen to me that's happened to the other speakers. I got drunk. I had blackouts, a lot of blackouts. 
I woke up in places I didn't know where I was or how I got there. I lost cars. I got in fights. I had a number of accidents, but nobody got hurt. Uh, I had a lot of indications. But my argument was that could happen to anybody. I uh, had two DWIs separated by about five or six years, and those were just sheer bad luck coincidences. Could happen to anybody. I got a good Indian buddy who uh, says he was in court for his sixth DWI before he realized that that did not stand for drinking with Indians. <laughs> I, uh, I continued to progress. Four and a half years later, I came walking in, and my commanding officer took me into his office. And he said, there's a brand new program out called Marine Aviation Cadet. You're the only guy in the unit who has entry scores that are high enough to possibly qualify you to go test for that program. I'd always wanted to fly, but those were just fantasy delusions out there. They were not anywhere on a lifetime reality radar scope. I mean, I, pilots that I knew were college educated. They came from better families, and they came from different sections of Wichita. And they, they, I was not, they didn't come out of a World War II housing project and an alcoholic home, a native community. <clears throat> but he's telling me that I can go take this test. So I opted to go take the test, and I passed. It was an all-day affair. He said, then said, he said, there's some things you need to know. This is an 18-month program. It's incredibly fast-paced. It's incredibly competitive. And the washout rate is generally 50%, plus or minus. And he said, the other thing is, you're coming in the back door as an enlisted Marine, because you got to go take a test. He said, 98, 99% of the rest of the people coming in here will come in from the civilian street side, and they've got to have two years college just to come in. And most of them will have more than that, and those will be the people you'll be competing with. Now, I could do the logic on that. Half don't make it. I'm in the high probability end of that don't make it half because I'm starting off way behind educationally. But I said, I want to try. I want to fly. I came home to Wichita. They were having a powwow. I went out and I danced. I was a dancer. I grew up in my culture. And uh, they had a special for me because I was going to Pensacola the next day, sort of an honoring dance. And uh, that dance really impacted and imprinted me because on the way to Pensacola the next day, I'm thinking, I cannot come back to this community as a failure. There's no way I can come back and tell them I'm back early because I didn't make it. I didn't hack it. I washed out. I cannot do that. I can't. So for 18 months, I was driven with that all the way through flight training. There were four phases to flight training at that time, and I always ended up as number two. That was my number. And the first time it happened, I was convinced it was administrative error. Somebody had jumbled papers and names, and I was just going to leave it alone. And as I continued to progress through there, I never got any sense of complacency or confidence. I never believed I was doing as good as my grades were indicating. I was watching my friends wash out weekly, sometimes daily. And I don't remember any of them actually looking me in the eyes. They came to say goodbye with a sea bag over their shoulder. And their dreams were over. They wanted to fly as badly as I could, did, but for some reason they didn't make it. And I watched him walk away, and I thought, someday that will be me. And I continued to push ahead. The last six months, I, went to I left the Florida area and went to Beeville, Texas. And I'm drinking. I'm drinking really hard because we're cadets. And I mean, I, and I'll tell you right now, I don't remember ever drinking without getting drunk. Now, I know that's a flawed memory or I'd be dead. But I do not remember ever drinking without getting drunk. I don't remember ever just having two or three drinks and calling it quits. And I'm getting drunk every Friday and Saturday night, just like all my buddies are. I mean, we're running hard and we're chasing hard. <clears throat> but the big book talks about the fact that at some point in time, we could control our drinking. I wanted these wings more than I wanted to be drunk. And so Sunday, I'm always sober. And I'm studying. Now, I'm gearing up. This is pre-Vietnam. I'm gearing up because I know Monday's coming and i got a whole bunch of stuff i got to do. So I'm not drinking on Sundays. <clears throat> I went to um, Beeville, Texas for advanced jet flight training, hooked up with my buddies the same, well, the same night I got in there, Friday night, went to the officer's club, got drunk. They said, let's go into town. There's a little place called uh, Kane's Drive-In. That's where all the good-looking South Texas girls hang out. And I was never very gutsy or aggressive with the ladies, but I, <clears throat> I had a lot to drink. I said, okay. So we went in there, and they immediately went after a carload of girls. There were uh, several, uh, four girls in the car, I think. Three of them, uh, my buddies went after them. The driver wasn't talking to anybody, and I stand back there drinking a little bit more thinking I need a few more of these before I make my approach. And, um, and I rehearsed several different things. 
that even exceed my normal level of cleverness. <clears throat> and I'm ready to go, so I walk up to the driver, and she turns and looks at me, and I forgot everything I was going to say. And I had a lot to drink. And um, all I could think of was she's got the prettiest brown eyes I've ever seen. So I said, you got the most beautiful brown eyes I've ever seen, except it came out like, he's got his brown eyes. <laughs> <laughs> And she looked at me like I just peed on the side of her car. And I turned around and walked away. And I was embarrassed. And I thought, nobody this drunk. I mean, I knew I couldn't talk. And that doesn't happen very often. I, there's a lot of times I couldn't talk, but I wasn't aware of it. But, and I thought, nobody this drunk should be able to be embarrassed. And I was embarrassed. I walked away. And a little while later, she got out and she walked into the ladies' room. And I was standing where I got a good look at her. And I could see her for a while. And I'm looking. I'm thinking, God Almighty. Turquoise shorts, she's got a cute butt, she's got pretty legs, she's got those brown eyes. And I had an AA thought, I didn't know it was an AA thought and wouldn't recognize it for about 29 years. But I looked at her walking in there and I'm thinking, oh, man, I want what she has and I'm willing to go to any length to get it. And <clears throat> had a chance encounter with her the next day. And uh, she had a girlfriend, I had a buddy with me and uh, she let me buy her some coffee, told me her name was Barbara and that I could call her. Reluctantly, she told me that. And on February the 25th of 63, her 20th birthday, she pinned a set of gold wings right here over my heart, on my chest. She pinned two gold bars on me. I'm now a Marine Second Lieutenant, young fighter pilot. I've succeeded. I can go home. And I've got this good-looking girl who thinks I'm okay. We went home to Wichita for three weeks. As the leave was coming to an end, she was staying with my sister. I called her and said, I don't want to lose you. Let's Let's go down to Oklahoma and get married. So we ran down, stood in front of a justice peace, got married. Last March the 9th, we celebrated 51 years. <clears throat> she joined me out in California. She was the youngest wife in the squadron, 20 years old. Very quickly, she was pregnant, which I considered part of my duty as a Marine. And, <laughs> We had a little baby boy, eight days less than a year later, we had a second one. People used to come up and I'd get so upset. Are you guys Catholic? <laughs> no, we're just horny Protestants. <clears throat> Barbara went home, I went to Vietnam. We were one of the first Marine Jet Squadrons in Vietnam. A place 50 miles south of Da Nang called Chu Lai. It was a very primitive setting just like World War II in the Pacific with the Marine Corps, except this one was in color. I'd seen the John Wayne movies. Living in sand, tents, eating sea rations out of small cans, uh, no air conditioning, no ice, no cold water, no nothing, no creature comforts. A little abbreviated combat airstrip that was half of what we needed. All of our landings were in carrier gear, jet assist takeoffs. We acquitted ourselves incredibly well over there. I was with 28 of the finest men and pilots I will ever, it will be a once in a life, I will never share that experience again. I was so honored to be in the middle of them. I put in for a regular commission, which I knew the Marine Corps would never give because of the college requirement. Never give that. And I got a regular commission as a high school grad. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go above and beyond. That's what I expect of me. That's what others expect of me. They don't expect me to go into a place in Fargo and drink myself into national disgrace. But I'm an alcoholic, and at some point in time, I lose control over the options I'm going to exercise. I don't call the shots anymore. The disease does. I stayed in the Marine Corps for 11 and a half years, got out, and went to work for Northwest Airlines three weeks later. Barbara and I had talked about, I'd gone in as a barely 18-year-old kid, private out of high school. I came out 11 and a half years later as a senior Marine Corps commission officer, captain, jet fighter pilot, personal decorations up here. I'd done well. I had done really well, and I was proud of that. For nearly 22 years at Northwest, I had the same kind of a career. Barbara had, and I had talked about adopting a child even before we got married. We had the two boys, and she wanted a little girl. We put in for an adoption, fought hard because we already had the two biological boys. After a 14-month struggle, we bring this little girl back to our house, a little Chippewa Indian girl. 17 days old she was, and we, she came into the house. Barbara now had her little daughter. Life was perfect. Perfect career, perfect family, perfect neighborhood, perfect everything. Most beautiful little girl I've ever seen, and she quickly became the center of my universe. Because I didn't know what daughters do to their dads. 
and she, she was just the center of my world. Her name was Dawn. She couldn't walk past me without me picking her up and looking at that very beautiful little face and saying, thank you for being my girl. She said, thanks for being my dad. When she was 17, she ran away from home. I didn't see it coming. Barbara didn't see it coming. I don't know if I hadn't been drinking, if I would have seen it coming or not. I just simply don't know. I had gone, I'd put off being a captain for two years because I thought she was going to go to college when she graduated. So so happy and proud that I could send my kids to college. And uh, so as it was coming up on graduation time, I went to Chicago to take a special test to become a captain. The, day, the next day I called home. Barbara said, Dawn's gone. She had taken stuff. And when Barbara took me to the airport the day before, left a runaway note. And I panicked and blurted out where to go and who to call and where to look. Scared to death. My little girl was gone, and I, I didn't know where she was. And I got on the airplane. Two hours later, I was home in Atlanta, and I don't remember anything changing or happening to me, but something did because I got off the airplane, and I hated her. God Almighty, I hated her. I didn't think I had the capacity to hate as much as I hated her. And it was white hot, and I told Barbara, I said, I don't care if she dies in the street. She'll never come back to my house. And I never want her name mentioned by any member of the family as long as she's alive. Within two days, everything she'd ever owned or touched in my house was gone. There was no evidence she'd ever been there. I went to the bank and ripped up her adoption papers. I went to an attorney and gave him $500 and disowned her. I tried to annul the adoption, and I couldn't. And I'm this white-hot, boiling, tornadic fury in the family. And in the way that only an alcoholic could do it, I looked around and I thought, you know, I don't think Barbara's handling this too well. She probably needs a therapist. <laughs> By the luck of the draw, I got in the yellow pages and pulled out a therapist's name, and he turned out to be a good one, and we saw him twice a month for about two years. I didn't like talking about my daughter, and one time he was trying to get me to talk about her, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, doctor. I said, I would rather hate than hurt. He said, you survived a childhood doing that, and if you continue, it'll destroy you. I get in treatment, I start looking, and I thought, that's what I've always done. I learned that early on, that if I get angry, no one can hurt me. If I get angry fast enough and that wall comes up quickly enough and it's high enough and thick enough, I'm not feeling any pain. All I feel is anger. And that's what I've done my whole life. I uh, <clears throat> went into treatment. Let me, let me pause here. The alcohol quit working for me. Barbara said, I don't want you drinking at home because when you drink, you say things about Don that I can't stand to hear. And she was right. They were dirty and they were filthy and they were vile and they were not true. And I said, I'll drink on the layovers. So I knew where every liquor store was and every city we flew into. I knew how long it took me to change clothes, get up there, get a quart of booze, get back to my room, lock the door, turn the TV on. I didn't answer the phone. If a crew member called, I didn't go if they knocked on the door. I said, all I wanted to do is drink. I don't know about you, but when I mix a drink, I mix the first one really strong. I mix them really strong. And sometimes I have to gag and choke a little bit to get that first one down. But once it goes down, the rest of them go really fast. But I couldn't get that sense of ease and comfort that we talk about, that I so remember. Even as I stand here right now, I remember that feeling, and it never came back again. Because for all intents and purposes, every time I swallowed some booze, I was pouring gas on the fire that was down here, and up came the hatred and the bitterness and the self-pity and the martyrdom and this list of things I had done for this little girl over 17 years, and look how she'd repaid me. And by the time the ball's over, empty, I'm emotionally exhausted. And the next night, I will go and do it again. Over and over and over, I tried that, and it never worked again for me. But I continued to try. And that's where we were the, when I was arrested. I went into treatment. I didn't want anybody to know who I was or what I was. And within a day or two, the media had it. Now everybody in the hospital knew. It was a week before anybody knew the color of my eyes. that I couldn't look at anybody. I sat there with my head down. So ashamed, so embarrassed, so destroyed. I walked into treatment, into a group therapy room the first week. Talking was counterintuitive to me, but for some reason they closed the door and there were eight or ten of us in there and I began to talk about my daughter. I didn't have that wall of anger and hatred. I didn't have it. It wasn't there with, it, it wasn't with me anymore. And I broke down and cried. I hadn't cried at my parents' funerals. I didn't cry. A couple of years ago my sister sent an email. She said, I grew up with you. I didn't think anything would ever make you cry. I don't know if it's a man thing, a Comanche thing, a Marine thing. I don't know what it was. I just didn't cry. But I cried that day, and I felt so embarrassed. But it was one of the best things that ever happened to me.
because I started to feel again, like a normal human being should feel. And I experienced pain as I should experience it. Hospital had no treatment, no visitors, no <coughs> um, phone calls. I told Don, Barbara, I said, get a hold of Don, let's put the family back together again. Hospital said, that's such an amazing breakthrough, we'll give you a day room and let you meet your daughter if she can come up here. A few days later, I walked into the day room. The two doctors heard about it and said, could we please come watch this? I walked into the room and they were standing off to my left. I saw Barbara, I saw Don, who was smaller than I remembered. My two boys were there. I walked over and put my arms around my little girl and told her how much I loved her instead of how much I hated her. Amazing, amazing experience because Alcoholics Anonymous was starting to work for me. I was starting to pay attention to what I'm supposed to do, not what she's supposed to do. I'm starting to look at a lot of different things because I'm listening and I'm not debating or arguing. Donna had gotten married and I didn't even know her last name. In her arms was a five-month-old granddaughter that I didn't know anything about, really. Already the promises are starting to come true and I'm not even aware of it in the middle of all this cataclysm. <clears throat> I wish I could report that that's all been good, but she's made some horrible life decisions and is in the midst of one right now. Not alcohol or drug related, I'm aware of, but I have a program called Alcoholics Anonymous that tells me that she has a right to her journey, just as I have a right to mine and you have a right to yours. And so I'm able to detach with love and allow that to happen. I, don't, I, die, I die to help her, but I, I won't lift a finger to enable her, and I know the difference. Thank God for this program and what it's allowed me to do. <clears throat> We began to get legal consequences coming into us. Nobody knew anything about that on the day of the arrest. None of the attorneys knew anything about it. A week to the day that I went into treatment, they announced that I'd been terminated by Northwest Airlines, which was fair and appropriate. I'd lost my, uh, the FAA issued an emergency revocation of all my flight certificates, fair and appropriate. I'd lost my FAA medical certificate because my alcoholism, fair and appropriate. I'm a hardcore believer in acceptance of personal responsibility and being accountable. I am not a victim of anything. When you do what you did, you get what you got. That's a fair deal. I'm not a victim even of alcoholism because I've done something about that. I've learned and I've done something. I got out of treatment. <clears throat> well, I went through six legal crises. They're having to come tell me these uh, because of the severity of them. And every time they come, the penalties doubled. The situation's twice as bad as it was. And the last time they came, there was a doctor standing there, and I thought, oh, my God, there's never been a doctor. We go down to his office. He said, well, so far, Minnesota's indicted me. North Dakota's indicted me. Federal marshals are going to come down and take me out of treatment. Uh, a whole bunch of things are happening. He said, uh, we just got word. A federal grand jury's indicted you. You're looking at 15 years in federal prison, a $250,000 fine, and an attorney's coming in Sunday wants $50,000, which I didn't have. We went broke within 30 days of the arrest. Everything we had was gone. He said, I have to ask if you're going to hurt yourself. And I said, no. But I numbed out. Every nerve ending in my body just shorted out and numbed out. I didn't feel anything. I went back to my room and collapsed. don't remember falling. But I remember my head lying on the carpet and I was crying for the second time. And I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I said, I got nothing left, not even for one more time. Please, not even one more time. Please, please help me. And I slept that night. I had many changes and experiences in that treatment center because I bought into this thing. I hoped it worked and it does. I got out, I was immediately in a heavily publicized trial in Minneapolis. No place I could go, the reporters didn't have it covered, sticking microphones and cameras in my face. But I had an advantage over the other two guys, because I'm an alcoholic. And I'm in the meetings at night, and at first I'm flinching because they recognize me. I'm all over the news and they recognize me. And I don't share when I'm in the meetings, I just sit there and I listen to you. And there's an energy in that room, and I take it back to the courtroom the next morning. And a criminal trial is indescribable especially one that's heavily publicized. And they're telling the world what a no good piece of crap I am, always have been. The tabloids are picking it up. Jay Leno's having a good time with it. David Lay, all they're all, it's everywhere. Jay Leno called me in June of 96 and apologized. That's another story I don't have time for. But I'm in the, I'm, and I can't respond to any of this. And I, sometimes I look across the courtroom and I see Barbara and she looks at me. Our eyes meet and she says, I love you. And I just nod, and I'd be okay. I told my attorney I'll be found guilty, and when I am, it'll be okay. 
wanted to plead guilty and he convinced me not to for reasons. I trusted him and, and uh, jury goes out, jury comes back very quickly. My attorney's standing there, I'm the captain, everything comes to me first. Guilty. He flinches and I reached over and patted him. I said, it's okay, Peter, it's all right. We went back for the sentencing a couple of months later. This was very fast. This, everything happened very fast. Sentencing guidelines were in place 12 to 18 months, and it was going to get 18 months at this time. And uh, the judge had strong feelings about this case, and I knew that. And a day and a half before, he had notified everybody, including the media, he's going to depart upward from the guidelines. My attorney said he can go all the way to 15 years. And I knew he, this was the toughest judge in the Minnesota Federal District. I walk into the courtroom, and this is all about step one. I'm powerless over what's going to happen. It's about the serenity prayer. Accept the things I cannot change. And I stood to speak when I was, I didn't know what I was going to say. I was so scared. And I talked about being grateful to be sober. I was grateful for the things that happened inside my family. I had accepted responsibility from this, for this from day one, and I couldn't change anything. He announced a sentence on me of 16 months, blew everybody in the courtroom away, two months less under the guidelines. Then he did something that was very unexpected because I'd given all my personal effects to Barbara and said, I think we'll be taken for the TV cameras directly to prison. He said this is a legal, very complex case. It was not designed for pilots. This law was not. There will be appeals. You three can remain free while your appeals are pending. The other two said, okay. I said, no, I'll go to prison now because I learned in here that I deal with life on life's terms. This is a first-person story. That means I'm standing up here saying I and me a lot. This is not about I or me. This is about we. This is about what you taught me and what I took and used in the rest of my life. About the steps and the power of each one of those and how I employ those and utilize them. That's what this is about. The judge told my attorney later, he said, I have never had a defendant before or since do that when they could have stayed out on appeal. He said, I was lost for words. I looked at my attorney and I said, he wasn't lost very long. <laughs> So on December the 5th of 1990, 34 years to the day that I entered Marine Boot Camp, I checked into the Atlanta Federal Prison as inmate 04478-041. I don't talk about prison from the podium. They're great stories. The audiences love them. It has nothing to do with my, re my recovery. My recovery has everything to do with how I dealt with prison, the people in it, the experiences that I had, and the circumstances I was in. I make two comments. There are two groups of really sick people in prison, and the sickest group goes home every night. And every now and then somebody will come up and go, I'm a guard, you hurt my feelings. I go, call your sponsor. And the other thing was I made 12 cents an hour while I was in there, and there was no 401K plan. <laughs> I got out of prison. I was broke. The judge had put sanctions on me as a part of the sentencing that made it impossible I would ever fly again, ever, ever, ever. So it was all done. It was gone. It was, I was through. A year after I got out of prison, and another story I don't have time to relate, Miracles happened, and he lifted those sanctions. Nobody thought that was possible. The FAA said, if you want to fly again, you'll start with a private license, which I had never had. You're going to have to start all over again, literally from the ground up. None of my pilot buddies thought it was possible. And I thought, how do I stay sober one day at a time? How do I go after these licenses? One license at a time. Ten and a half months later, I'd passed all four writtens, which was nothing but sheer, gutty, gritty, hard work. No shortcuts, no quick fixes. But there's a flying part that's involved in that, and I couldn't do it. It was going to cost ten dollars to $20,000. I'm working in the counseling department in the same treatment center that has saved my life. I'm making $14,000 a year. That's the best job I ever had. But I'm just barely surviving. I'm just barely staying alive. Barbara's bringing in what she can, which isn't much. And I can't do this. I get a letter and a phone call from one of the pilots at Northwest. He said, I know you don't know, but I've got a flight school. I want you to come up here and live with me and my family and go through my flight school free and do the flying portion. I was under 13 conditions of probation. I went to Minnesota. I checked in with the Department of Corrections up there. And for 44 days, I lived with that man and his wife going through their flight school. Rained out 14 days, and I just never quit studying. I don't know how to slow down. When I go, I go. And that's a gift from my parents. I've got a a good work ethic. And I don't mind getting dirty. I don't mind working hard. I don't mind working long. I'll do what needs to be done. 
I came back with four licenses. And I'm in the AA meetings up there while I'm doing this. At night, I'm in AA. That's where I belong. That's where I live. That's where my life is. That's what gave me back my life. And I don't shortcut AA. And I came back with four licenses. But I thought, so what? Everybody in commercial aviation knows about Lyle Prowse and Northwest Flight 650. They will never hire them. I'll never fly on American soil. And a month after I'd come home, the licenses physically arrived in the mail, and within an hour I got a phone call from the head of the pilot union at Northwest. The grievance had been automatically filed because of my termination. I never activated it because Northwest was, was justified in terminating me. I was not going to fight that. I did what I did, and they, their reaction was fair, and it was appropriate. And he said, and I, this is the best phone call I ever made, because he said three hours ago, John Dasberg, who's the president and CEO of Northwest Airlines, made a personal decision to bring you back and restore you to full flight status at Northwest. I sat there with tears streaming down my cheeks. That was so beyond possible. So beyond possible. I had so shamed and disgraced and embarrassed Northwest Airlines nationally, and it had gone on, and they're going to bring me back and allow me to fly again. And as I thought about it, I thought, he's gambling his career on mine. If I go back and relapse, the board of directors will boot him straight out of, the, out of his position for allowing a guy who's in the headlines, convicted felon, alcoholic, and he brings me back and lets me do it a second time. His career in aviation is over. Why would he take that chance? And I asked him a number of times and never got a good answer. He just smiled and said, we talked about that. I went back in November of 93, signed a very emotional back-to-work agreement, never to be a captain again. I was okay. One of the knives in my heart was that I had taken Barbara after all of Vietnam and all the trials and troubles and struggles to a zero at the end of the road, and that hurt. And now I was going to be able to provide her for at least some part of a retirement. Northwest now had a program, and I'm part of the program bringing young pilots back, watching families and lives restored and saved, and I get to be part of that. And my dedication every time I showed up was to be the best employee that Northwest ever had, so that at the end of the day, John Dasberg never had an ounce of regret about his decision to bring me back. And the miracles in this program never cease. All I'm doing is staying sober a day at a time and doing the best job I can. And as I'm coming up on my last year at Northwest, speaking at United Airlines, late at night, I get a phone call. John Dasberg's just abrogated your agreement. He's changed your agreement. You're coming up on your last year at Northwest, and when you come home, he wants you to be a 747 captain. I laid there in the dark, and I felt like God was looking down and grinning and winking at me and saying, every time you think I've used up my miracles, I can show you one more. Because I never thought anything would ever surpass my return to Northwest. Nothing could cl climax that. And here it goes. I go back and I check out as a captain, fully restored, trusted, put in the left seat of a 747, mega million dollar airplane flying all over the world with a crew of 18,400 passengers, completely trusted. Not because my name's Lyle Prowse or I have any special qualities, but because I'm a sober member of AA. The best part of my story is that I get no credit for it, except for suiting up and showing up. I did that part. Because if I'm somebody special, then none of you can relate to my story. I'm just another alcoholic who did what was suggested and asked of me. And these promises came as a result. Your promises will be different somehow, but they will be no less miraculous if you do what I did and what we're all asked to do here. I retired honorably 1998, the mandatory age then of 60, 65 now. And I knew I'd done a good job. I retired with a better reputation than I'd ever had before. Within days of my retirement, my attorney called me and he says, Judge Rosenbaum, who is now chief judge of the Minnesota Federal District, just called. And he said in 16 years and on the federal bench, he has never supported a petition for pardon. But he'll support yours if you want to make the attempt. I had never considered such a thing. The judge wrote a three-page affidavit that is so chokingly powerful that to this day I cannot read it all the way to page three without tearing up. This is what the man says about me who's tried me, sentenced me, and sent me to prison. It's unbelievable. 
paperwork went in. Two years later, I came walking in. Eight phone messages telling me I had just received a presidential pardon. That's mega huge. Mega huge if you have a felony conviction. I want to close with something I heard Father Martin do one time. He took it off of a card that a girl sent him, so I'm sure he doesn't mind. I got to spend time at his place a number of times and spend time around him, and I just idolized him before he died. But I love the way this addresses things. It's, it's kind of the way I see life. That is, I do not wish you joys without a sorrow, nor endless day without the healing dark, nor brilliant sun without the restful shadow, nor tides that never turn against your bark. I wish you faith and strength and love and wisdom and goods, gold enough to help some needy one. I wish you songs, but also blessed silence and God's sweet peace whenever day is done. My Comanche name is Yetzatanapa, but you know me as Lyle, and I'm an alcoholic, and I thank you for letting me be here with you this morning.